0: House of James, Tell the people of Israel, you what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Matthew thirteen or Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the word of the Lord.
1: We continue our study of First Peter Uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. uh, I'll be after the fact uh, speaking on a theme of Thanksgiving because next Sunday is the final Sunday in the church year. New church year starts in Advent season and Advent begins two weeks from today. So I thought it would be very fitting to end uh, the, the church year by giving thanks to the Lord, especially coming off our Thanksgiving celebration. And then sometime in the new year, we'll be returning to our study uh, of 1 Peter, or that's the plan, I should just say that. Uh, Last week, we looked at verses in which Peter is describing for us what the church actually is. And we said that in spite of our our colloquial use of the word church the fact that we say I'm going to church or I think I left my hat at the church or we speak of a building as if it were the church while the New Testament Christians and indeed the Second Temple Israelites uh, knew of the magnificence of the temple in Jerusalem and knew of the simple beauty of their synagogues, as well as of the classical beauty of pagan temples. When they spoke of the church, they were not talking about a place or building, they were talking about people, both under the old covenant, the, the assembly of Israel, and under the new covenant. The church was the people of God, those whom he called to himself for his purpose. And Peter described in the verses we looked at last week, used two different descriptions. One was he said that God is building a spiritual house. It's a picture of a temple in which God would dwell. But he's building it of living stones. And he says, you, the people of God, are living stones being fitted into that building. And you're being attached in that building to the great living stone, the cornerstone Jesus Christ, and then he changes at the, the picture and says, within that house, you are also serving as priests and you are offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Now he's going to take this up and continue really throughout the rest of the letter to show what it looks like when we're offering spiritual sacrifices to God, but he, in, in finishing this part, gives us, again, three different aspects of what we are to be as the church and i want to really underscore this morning that the church to be the church must be missional it must be a church on mission if you think about where the church is growing and where it's declining today uh, in spite of the fact that we have huge church buildings the biggest that have ever been built in the United States and we still have some very huge congregations. Uh, the church is declining very quickly. Church attendance in the United States is evaporating so quickly that it's now being called the great Deep churching And there is a book entitled that, The Great De-churching, de-churching Uh, written by two professors at Reformed Seminary and they are analyzing the reasons and they are arguing in this book that this is the biggest spiritual movement in the history of the United States because it is reversing the enormous growth of the church since the Great Awakening just before uh, the revolution and the formation of our country. Yet, they are pointing out that we live in a world where the church is growing rapidly. And so, as we read this text, what I would remind you is that in the places where it doesn't cost anything to be a Christian, in places where we are completely free to worship or not worship, the church is now declining. In the places where it costs something to be a Christian. In the places where you could pay for it dearly to profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the church is exploding. And I think we should not really be surprised by that because the huge church growth movement of the 1970s, back when I was in seminary, with its principles of homogeneity and a sort of a Walmart full-service church approach. We should have realized that what we were going to produce was spiritual consumers who are looking for the niftiest place with the kind of the coolest buildings and the best coffee shop and, you know, the places with all the the bells and whistles. But it's produced by and large spiritual consumers rather than the church. And so as I read these verses, remember that Peter is writing to Christians. Who are suffering under he's writing to help them deal with the persecution that they are facing and he says this beginning with verse 9 of first peter chapter 2 but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his god's own possession that you may proclaim the Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Continuing that uh, idea of the church growing so rapidly where it's being pressed, that is not true in places where the church is only among the rich and powerful, which is why the church basically collapsed in most of Northern Africa when Islam arose. It was because in North Africa, you'd have the great theologians, Augustine and Tertullian and others, but they were by and large, highly educated, reaching the highly educated, writing in Latin, speaking in Latin and not in the Berber of the people, and so the church did not reach the poor. But wherever in the world the church reaches the poor and begins to grow among the poor, no power on earth can stamp it out. And that's why during the 1950s, when I was a child, I used to hear my parents tell the stories of the China Inland Mission, the great work of Hudson Taylor, his his cutting edge, inland mission no longer just in the ports and he was the first one who dressed like the Chinese grew his hair long in and put it in a pigtail in order to incarnate the message to look like the people and God so used him and the church in China had grown some and there were leading pastors and people like Watchman Nee and others uh, who, who, whose books were read in the west and appreciated and then communism arose and I grew up constantly hearing this great church had been destroyed. There weren't Christians in China anymore. It was gone, we need to pray for China. And so we did. And then when things began to lift in the 80s, it was discovered that the church had grown faster in China than anywhere else in the world in human history. It had exploded under that pressure because it cost something to be a Christian. And among the poor, particularly, the church had just swept through the land and it was estimated that there were 100 million Christians in China, most of them unregistered. Then in the 90s, we began to see China change and the pressures lift and after Tiananmen Square, you had many young, highly educated communists leave communism and become Christians because they'd become disillusioned with communism. And they weren't going to register with the government and they weren't gonna hide and go underground. And I would meet in Beijing and Shanghai and other places with dynamic young Chinese Christian leaders who were establishing big churches that were meeting in the open and standing up, so they thought, to the government. And I had the opportunity of having lunch one day with Jamie Taylor, James Hudson Taylor IV, the great-great-grandson of the great Hudson Taylor. And I said, isn't this exciting, what's going on in China? He said, I hate it. And I said, why? He said, they all want to be like the American church, and it will kill their mission. It will destroy their witness. And when I heard that, once again, Christians in China are being pressured, there's Big churches have been closed. I wondered if it is because God will not let that church cease to be a missional church because He desires to keep growing it. And, brothers and sisters, I am not the stuff of which martyrs are made. I love reading about the persecuted church and. Uh, admiring and praying for the persecuted church and then checking to see if I have any more fresh croissants to eat. I mean, I fully admit I am as as American as it comes. But you and I need to remember, if I pray for our country that what we seem to see happening right now is going to be reversed. But we look just like Weimar Germany. And if we doubted that, the anti-Semitism spewing from our best universities and centers of culture is just a picture of exactly what happened to the most highly cultured nation on earth, Germany, just before Hitler came to power. So if things go south, young people realize that it may be a severe mercy that God is giving us to make the church in this country once again be the kind of missional church that Peter's describing here. And he's describing it in three ways. He's telling us that if we would be a church on mission, we have something to be, we have something to say, and we have something to do. First of all, we have something to be. God's treasured possession. Did you recognize when I read that opening verse the first lesson that Danielle read to us from Exodus? Because Peter's quoting, the people have just come out. How many moons was it? Two moons out, uh, that two, two months out of Egypt. And God says to Moses, tell my people that they are my treasure." possession. And then he describes it in the same words that Peter uses, you, my people, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, my own people. I don't mean to get in all the cultural stuff, but identity politics is one of the things that's been killing us. We once thought of this country as a great melting pot where people would come from all over the world and become American. And then somewhere we all began hyphenating and identifying and dividing. And the worst divisions that are coming now are the uh, defined oppressor and oppressed. And if you are defined as an oppressor, there is nothing too horrible, too savage to hideous that can be done to you that you don't deserve. And if you are oppressed, there is no terror, no horror, no rape or murder or beheading of babies that isn't justified because you're oppressed. We've got the division. What God aims to do is to create a new race consisting of those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He started with Israel, one people, because through them he was going to give his written word and his living word, the Messiah. But once that happened, Acts 2, when Pentecost came, Babel was reversed. The division of people into different tongues. Suddenly, at Pentecost, they say, how is it that we all hear, in our own language, this gospel of Christ? because God is now bringing back together and he describes the church writing to all different people, speaking different languages. He gives the word that God had given to Israel. You are now part of what I'm doing. This one olive tree that Paul described in Romans eight, that this olive tree of Israel has some branches, natural branches cut off because of unbelief, but. God is taking wild branches from the wild olive trees, us Gentiles, and grafting them in. And most of us here are Gentiles. Um, forgive me, I didn't get permission. But get used to it, Connie. This is what I do to my family. Uh, Connie, uh, my bride, was telling me when she was a little girl growing up in Robbinsville, North Carolina. Um, she was sitting in Sunday school and the teacher said you're all gentiles and she raised her hand and said I'm not I'm a republican which made her made her grandmother very pleased but whether you're republican or democrat most of us here are gentiles and yet God in his infinite grace is making us Israelites part of the true Israel of God and that's your identity don't let somebody tag you as something other than who you are in Jesus Christ. If you are his, you are chosen and precious, and he has chosen you for the same purpose that he chose Israel, which is to be a light to the nations. Israel was uniquely loved and chosen, not for itself, but in order that it might be that light to the nations. And now that we've been grafted in, that has been entrusted to you and to me. So that's the first thing that we are to be. We're a chosen nation. Then he says we're royal priests. Within Israel, there were the priests who were descendants of Aaron, and there were the kings, first Saul's family, then David's family. It was a family thing. And yet God said to the Israelites right after he brought them out, all of you, whether you're descendants of Aaron, whether you're descendants of of whoever, You know, later Judah, you are royal priests. You are kings and priests. And Peter says that to you and me. What does that mean? It means first that God has given you areas of dominion, properly understood, not domination, but of dominion in your lives where He has entrusted people, your children for a time, your work, your gifts. He has given you dominion over these areas and says there, as he said to our first parents, be fruitful and multiply. This is what I've entrusted to you. You are royal. You are a child of God. Now, don't think of yourself in little categories and terms. You take whatever I've given you and you develop it as to the very best that you can so that you might offer it back to me and you are priests offering these spiritual sacrifices. The prophet faces the people and speaks God's word. The priest faces God and speaks for the people. And God has entrusted to every one of us a network of relationships. It usually looks like a series of concentric circles from those closest to us, and people that we know a little less, but it goes out are you wrestling in prayer day by day for those whom the Lord has given you? Rather than being angry with children who are far from you or with parents who've neglected you, are you instead taking up your priestly service and seeking before God to pray for God to do whatever it will take to bring them to himself? We are royal priests. We are, he says, a holy nation. And again, remember, as we saw last week, that holiness in the Bible speaks of being set apart for God, set apart for God's own service. I think right after I came here, I gave, for me, what was the game changer for me as a child in understanding what holiness really was Uh, I don't recall if I was getting ready to go hunting or fishing, but I was going out the door, my dad was sitting watching me, and I grabbed a pair of his waders. And he called me and said, get back in here, whoa. And I said, can I not use this, or may I not use these? And he said, those are my holy waders. He was Baptist, and that's what he wore under his robe when he baptized. He said, you take those over there. Those are are my hunting waders. And I realize that is a Biblical meaning of the word. Those waiters have been set apart for sacred use and they weren't to be used for something profane. And God has set you and me apart for his purposes. That's what it means to be holy before the Lord. Now our righteousness comes from Christ, but holy means the ways that we are set apart for God's purposes. So something to be, something to say. He says that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. That's what we're doing here together when we're singing God's praises. Someone once asked me in another church, why is it that we have to sit around and keep telling God who he already knows he is? And I said, you know, we're, we're actually doing this for ourselves and as a witness to others, we are declaring in song and in word, as we're told to in scripture, the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into light. Darkness is not a thing, it is an absence. When, you, when we leave this sanctuary, somebody doesn't turn up the dark. They just turn off the lights. When the light is gone, it's dark. And so the one who called us out of those places in our lives where he is, if he could be, absent or at least absent in the sense of his rule and his will being done, he calls us into the light of his presence consciously to realize God is here and he wants now to shine his light, his presence, his truth Through me, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we aren't praying two different things. That's Hebrew parallelism. The second defines the first. We pray, your kingdom come, we think, but what does that look like? Your will be done. Where his will is being done, his kingdom is present. And there, the darkness has been scattered and the light is shining. And he wants us to be those who both speak and live in such a way that the darkness is increasingly being dispelled. I would, if I had time, give the illustration. He's using the language here, too. He goes on to say, once you were not a people, now you are my people. Once you were not loved, now you're loved. He's using the language of that beautiful little Old Testament book Hosea okay it's 11:23. I think I can do this fast I didn't plan to but um, I'll try if you know the book of Hosea you you know the beauty of this story it's painful story God says to his prophet Hosea I want you to go and marry a prostitute because my people have prostituted themselves by going after other gods so this poor guy Goes down, finds a prostitute named, best name in the Bible, Gomer, of all things. Finds Gomer, marries her. And then they have some kids, but he isn't sure that they're his because they get names like, not my people, not loved, scattered. And then she goes off with another man. But that man can't take care of her, and she ends up going from one to the next. And in the end, he's the one who's going leaving food at the door. Because God said, I'm the one who has brought the rain. I'm the one who has provided the crops. I'm the one who gave this good land to my people. But they're worshiping other gods as if they'd gotten it from them. And you're going to do what I have done. And finally, nobody wants her anymore. And she's being sold down at the slave market. And God says, now you go down. And you buy her back. He does. And he puts his robe on her. Covers her nakedness. And he says, now you will be a wife to me. That's what he's quoting. He's this is like a computer link where you see it and you go and there's the story. He's quoting from, my, from Hosea and he's reminding us of the brokenness of our own lives and the depth of God's love as he goes after us in our disobedience and covers us with his righteousness and says, now you will be my beloved, my bride. And there's something to do and this really is what we're going to be looked at much more when we go back to this but he just says don't don't give yourself to those things that destroy your soul don't don't throw away this treasure of what you are listen beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Why would he call Gentiles other? Because we're a new race, you say We're this new chosen race. So the Gentiles are still out there. He's called us out of that into his true Israel. But he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. When most of us think passions of the flesh, we immediately think of sexual immorality, and that's certainly part of it. But it's so much more than that. The flesh in the New Testament, that word sarks, does not mean this. It's not talking about what we call flesh. It's talking about everything, thoughts, words, deeds, inclinations of the heart that are in opposition to God's kingdom coming and his will being done. It is humanity and rebellion against God as opposed to those walking in the spirit. And he's saying when we give ourselves over again to what we want as opposed to what we know God wants, it it just wounds our souls. And in the end, we're in danger of destroying who we are. And the soul in the Bible is not some separate entity. It really is the description of the whole person, your personality, the person that you are, that's your soul. Don't destroy it, he says, by just giving yourself up to everything that you want. I I mean, I'm preaching to you, but I'm preaching to myself. I've confessed to you before. I am far too much like Oscar Wilde, who famously said, I can resist anything but temptation. I mean, I love preaching against your sins. I don't like preaching against the things that tempt me. But we need to remember, God hasn't given us a list of rules because he wants to dominate us. He's given us an instruction manual for the way he made us, and he's telling us, if you want health and wholeness, this is the way. The other will destroy you. If you're out of gas and you want to just dump kerosene in your engine, you'll be able to start it and start driving off. You're not gonna get very far and you're gonna wreck your engine. And what the Bible calls sin is simply that which in the end destroys, wrecks us. He says, don't live that way for yourselves, but don't live that way because as a missional person, as part of a missional church, Our call is to live in a way that will give those to whom we are declaring the excellencies of, of him who called us out of darkness into light, a reason to believe what we're saying. And most people whom I know who have rejected the gospel have not rejected it because they read a book by Richard Dawkins or by Sam Harris. Those then bolster their desire not to believe but almost all of them tell a story of having been hurt or rejected by someone who professes to be a Christian. So he's saying uh, Gordon Fee, one of my favorite professors in seminary, used to always say to us, "Be, be who you are. That's what it is. It's God isn't saying, now be something special so that I can love you. God is saying, I have loved you. I have given you my spirit. I have made you my treasured possession. Now start living like that. Start living as my child. And then the world around us will have a reason to believe that just maybe the gospel is true. Something to be. You're God's chosen beloved one you're a member of this new race the new Israel consisting of those from every tribe tongue people and nation you are his treasured possession you're a a royal priest he's given you something to say declare his glory Declare the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into light, and he's given you something to do. Walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with him. Father, thank you. Thank you for Peter's strong, true, and life-giving words to us. And I pray that you will bind those words to our hearts, that we might know the joy of those who have been redeemed through Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer and our King, amen. Please stand with us.